Does loneliness actually make us sicker? Do people who have more friends live longer? Why is loneliness a public health issue? Today's guest is Julianne Holt Lundstedt. She is a professor of psychology and neuroscience and the Martin B. Hickman Distinguished Scholar at Brigham Young University. She's also the founding scientific chair of the U.S. Coalition to End Social Isolation and Loneliness and Foundation for Social Connections. Julian is a loneliness expert. She's focused on understanding the long-term health effects, biological mechanisms, and the effective strategies to mitigate risk and promote protection associated with social connection. Her work has been seminal in the recognition of social isolation and loneliness as risk factors for early mortality. She serves as a scientific advisor and regularly consults for organizations across sectors aimed at addressing this issue. Julian has provided expert testimony in the U.S. Congressional Hearing and consults with the Office of the U.S. Surgeon General globally. Her work is recognized globally, and she's regularly highlighted in major media outlets. I love it when our listeners leave us reviews on Apple Podcasts. A couple of you did that recently. One says, one listener said, your time is precious, and this one deserves a spot in your up next list. And www.purple said, it's a one podcast I always come back for because of the refreshing topics and the excellent choice of guests. I totally agree with that. We have some awesome guests who come week after week. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. There's a link to sign up in the podcast show notes. Each week, our producer, Rob Lugisi, curates a list of great stuff to read about design and health. Now, here's my conversation with Julian holt Lundstad. Julian, welcome to Design Lab. I'm so excited to speak with you. Oh, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for, for inviting me to do this. I'm preparing for this interview. I've listened to your talks, read your articles, uh, you're on some great podcasts, and you make this claim that the single best thing to do for your health is to nurture your relationship. So is that like mainly for like our mental health? So no. <laughs> Well, and I should clarify, you know, because I, I don't want to say that anything else you do is unimportant, but rather our relationships are just as important as many of these other things that we we take seriously for our health. But I'm I'm really talking about our physical health. And we have very strong evidence that our relationships and, you know, including not only just the size of our social networks, but the functions that they serve and the quality of these relationships can have very profound effects on not only health-relevant physiology, but ultimately our risk for developing chronic illnesses and ultimately how long we live. And when I say physical health, importantly, yes, it does also impact our mental health, but mm. also our cognitive health too. Mm. So this is fascinating because I didn't learn anything about this in medical school or residency training, and I want to dive into this. So you're saying that our relationships are going to make us actually live longer and maybe decrease our risk of developing like chronic diseases, like diabetes, hypertension, stuff like that. Like that sounds more like, you know, my... I put on my doctor scientific hat. I was like, that sounds more, more like correlation and not causation. Well, 
<laughs> let me tell you a little bit about the evidence. And so part of that is, you know, of course, over time, the evidence has gotten stronger. So, I mean, this this evidence dates back, I think some of the earliest, well, one of the earliest studies is back from the late 1800s, but um, more systematic mm. studies. I think the one of the first at large scale epidemiological studies was in 1979. And by about 1988, there were five large scale epidemiological studies by 2010, when I did my first meta-analysis, there were 148 large-scale epidemiological studies. Mm -hmm. And then a more recent review included 276. <laughs> um, and then there's been more since then. So, so clearly, the evidence has grown over time. And not only are there more studies, but the scale and, and rigor of these studies has gotten much stronger over time. Mm. And so we, we can be much more confident now in these findings than, say, you know, a decade or two ago. Mm. But, you know, to that question about is it just correlational or causational? Well, first of all, you know, there are some in the camp that you can never claim causation on anything. <laughs> sure, yeah. Okay, we're, um, we're, we're going to pretend we don't hang out with those people. <laughs> but yeah, so, I mean, part of that comes from the scientific standpoint. One of the ways that is commonly, or a methodological approach that is commonly used to make causational types of claims is experimental evidence mm. where you you know randomly assign people to an experimental condition or a control condition and it's kind of difficult to randomly assign people to be isolated yeah, yeah. Um, or you not can't put well, one group into like or... <laughs> hey you have no friends you live alone right and you're lonely <laughs> and like you have a lot of friends you're not lonely and let's follow you for 30 years <laughs> however there is evidence in animals where this has been done. In animals, what? They're putting rats with no friends? <laughs> yeah. So in non-human primates and rats, they'll experimentally house the animals in isolation or socially and look at how that impacts. And of course, it is associated with the development of cancerous tumors, strokes. Mm. Um, strokes are, there's less recovery if they do have a stroke. Um, and even death. And there's many studies that have looked at this experimentally in animals. It's also been looked at experimentally in terms of experimentally assigning people to a social condition. So adding some kind of social context or enrichment in humans' lives and demonstrating some of those benefits. But we also have a wealth of data in very large scale population studies where they look at the extent to which people are socially connected or lack social connection, isolated, lonely, and follow them over years, often decades, to see you know, whether that predicts how long people live. And these studies, you know, controlling for age, controlling for health status, controlling for all sorts of lifestyle factors, have established you know, the protective effects of being socially connected and the, the risks associated with isolation and loneliness as independent predictors of risk for premature mortality. We also have good evidence of the biological pathways that explain it. So we have evidence of directionality and we have evidence of the mechanisms. We have evidence controlling for alternative kinds of explanations. Hmm. And so interestingly, 
there have been a few analyses where they have taken the Bradford Hill guideline. This is a set of nine criteria that are used to establish causality in many public health kinds of issues. And in fact, it's probably known for the criteria that was used to establish smoking as mm. a risk factor for mortality. Because similarly, it's difficult to randomly assign people to become smokers yeah. and or non-smokers, right? And so the same criteria that were applied to smoking was applied to social connection. Mm. And you have that research study that's been yeah. quoted all the time, right? That social support can like increase your survival by like something like 50% by, and it's like as beneficial as giving up smoking 15 cigarettes a day, which is wild. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We wanted to make sure we benchmarked it relative to other factors that people take seriously for their health, because we knew that if we just reported it's associated with 50% increased odds of survival, people would say, well, what does that mean? Because yeah. <laughs> we're constantly hearing about a variety of factors that influence our health. And it's sometimes difficult to weigh what is far more consequential than other things. And so by by benchmarking this relative to some of these other factors that we take seriously, it helps people contextualize just how how impactful our relationships can be for our health and longevity. Now, your research and these claims, I think are probably new to most people, even someone like me, I'm a, I'm a physician, I think about this a lot, I think, but when I speak with my patients, it's like, oh, diet, exercise, you know, stop smoking, sleep more, but I don't ever say get more friends <laughs> yes, <laughs> but to be healthier. Like why isn't, if there's so much evidence out there and it's a growing body of evidence, how come this isn't talked about more as a prescription for health? So I think in part, it might be due to well, it could be several factors. I mean, one is that the the evidence has been developing over time. But I think also in part, there is the perception that this is a personal issue. Mm. And that perhaps it's it's something that institutions shouldn't get involved in. Mm. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> but as this evidence has grown, there certainly have been recommendations for this to be integrated into healthcare. In fact, the, mm. the National Academy of Science expert consensus report that I was a part of and was published in 2020 makes specific recommendations on the health relevance for the healthcare system, including recommendations that assessment of isolation and loneliness and, and an individual's level of social connection be included in the electronic health record. Mm -hmm. And this is consistent also with previous recommendations that were made by the Institute of Medicine earlier. And I'm happy to say that I have been a part of the Gravity Project that has been working towards getting this established in the electronic health record and should be forthcoming. Mm -hmm. So maybe in the future, we can have physicians doing this or other healthcare providers doing this as part of the intake process where you ask about your past medical history, your social history. I ask patients about you know, how much they drink, if they have about drug use. And then I can ask them about like loneliness. 
and isolation. And I want to rewind a little bit. You are a loneliness expert. How do you define loneliness? <laughs> How do you define isolation? Are they the same? And is there a way for us to assess this in people? Oh, wow. That was jam-packed. We've got <laughs> like, what is the relevance and what should you be asking about and definitions? <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll start with the definitions and then maybe we can talk you know, more broadly about why this is important for patients and these why these conversations might be important to have in the clinic. So first of all, isolation and loneliness are very related, but distinct. Mm. And so isolation is thought to be more objective. It's objectively being alone or having few social contacts or infrequent social contact. Loneliness is more subjective, the subjective feeling of alone. And this is described as, as kind of a distressing feeling and that it's based on the discrepancy between one's actual level of connection and one's desired level of connection. So isolation and loneliness often go hand in hand because um, if you're objectively alone, you're more likely to feel alone. But that's not always the case. You can be isolated and not feel lonely. You might actually enjoy that time alone, or at least temporarily enjoy that time alone. And conversely, you could be surrounded by other people and still feel profoundly lonely. So people will often describe feeling lonely in a crowd perhaps feeling lonely at a party, even though they might have other people around, and occasionally even lonely in a marriage. And so we need to recognize that they are both important for health. And we have evidence to suggest that each of them may be equivalently important, although we can get into some of the nuances there. Uh -huh. But if there is that kind of discrepancy, the way in which we might go about helping someone might be slightly different because you can imagine if someone is lonely but not isolated, just increasing contact might not be the right approach. Yeah. And um, if someone is isolated and perfectly content, <laughs> uh, some of the more cognitive type of approaches may be less effective for that individual as well. So, so we need to kind of think about how we approach it differently depending on which it is. But as I mentioned, both are really important. And I think this is something that might be kind of a misconception that often people think that if you don't feel lonely, then it's fine, right? Yeah. <laughs> like if you're perfectly content being alone, then there's no risk. It's really if you're just lonely. But we have strong evidence that even just objective isolation can have profound effects. And so even as something as simple as whether or not you survive a heart attack, if you're alone and there aren't others around, just making it to the hospital can be a matter of life or death. And so having someone in the home, having others around can have profound effects. And in fact, there was a recent study that showed that having individuals, so for people who, who live alone, having other kinds of relationships outside the home only partially compensate, but don't fully compensate for the kind of companionship mm. that you can get from having someone in the home. And, you know, this is, we, we found a lot during the pandemic about how <laughs> the people inside your home, when that's the only contact you have, yeah, yeah. Um, can be quite important. <laughs>
And, you know, I, I work primarily at night in an emergency room in Philadelphia. And one of the saddest things I see is when older people come into the emergency room, maybe they were going to bathroom, they fell, they broke their hip and they come in and when they're alone and I go, can I call any family or friends? And they're like, no, I, there's no one who can see me here and it's like two o'clock in the morning they're 80 years old and alone it is the saddest thing but i see that all the time and you know i'm curious to know your thoughts on loneliness on the global scale is this how are we in america just really bad at loneliness when compared to other countries because when i think of um, my parents are korean i'm korean and then when one of us gets sick and go to the hospital, we camp out there until the hospital staff kicks us out. And this is an observation I've seen with like Asian families. When their relatives come in, there's almost always a person with them. And I'm kind of curious to know other like cultural differences in loneliness. Yeah. I mean, what you described is a perfect example of how having those social connections are so important to recovery and progression of illness, having that support can make a huge difference in objective health outcomes. In terms of the global scale of this, I mean, we do have evidence that loneliness is something, first of all, that's universally experienced by humans. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I can talk a little bit more about you know why that might be, but that there may be cultural differences in terms of how prevalent it is and and how it might be expressed. And so there are certainly cultural differences in terms of how interconnected families and communities are. Some of this is looked at at factors such as how, you know, quote unquote, independent versus collectivistic a culture might be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we certainly see cultures like what you described, where there's a cultural even obligation to care for older generations yeah. that we don't always see in other cultures. But they're also, when we think about subjective loneliness, so that might impact the extent to which you have access to resources. But when it comes to that subjective feeling of the discrepancy between one's actual level of connection and one's desired level, in some cultures where there's a higher expectation, there still could be a discrepancy, even though objectively they might be receiving mm. <laughs> more support than, say, someone else. If it's um, discrepant from what they're expecting, there may still be that, that level of subjective dissatisfaction with that. And so we're still trying to really tease apart some of these cultural differences in some languages. They don't have different words for isolation and loneliness. Mm. In Spanish, from and, and I'm not a Spanish speaker, but from what I'm told is that it's the same word mm. for both isolation and loneliness. And so part of what researchers are trying to understand is when even our language for something is vastly different, how might that impact how, how we understand and make meaning and do our assessment tools that have been developed in the West, are they culturally appropriate uh, yeah. for others? And so that's something that we're trying to grapple with right now. Yeah. 
So you have taken your students to blue zones in the past around the world. So these are these places on the planet where people live longer. Are those people less lonely? You know, it's interesting because in each of these cultures, one of the defining features of them is a very close-knit community. Mm -hmm. And as you were talking about your own experience, I was thinking of one of these blue zones in Ikaria, Greece, where when someone needs help, the whole community comes together. Mm -hmm. And it's a very small, you know, often these blue zones are these small villages. And so, you know, everyone's somehow a cousin or a cousin of a cousin. (laughs) (laughs) So it's almost like everyone's extended family. But I was told how culturally, in terms of caring for an older adult, that it would bring incredible shame on someone to not care for their aging parent. 100%. (laughs) I I feel that way. I would feel shame if I did not care for my parents and my in-laws. Like I feel the same way. Well, and they, they talked about how, you know, not only the, the children would care for it, but then if the children weren't able to, then the extended family you know, if there wasn't extended family present, then, you know, the community would uh, step in. But that to send someone to a care facility would be unthinkable, Yeah, you know, to be cared for by strangers that they very much valued caring for each other. And there was a sense of interdependence and that not only by caring for others, that there was the reciprocity of knowing and being able to trust that you will be cared for as well. And, and there's a sense of security in that as well. So it sucks for us if we are not in one of those close-knit <laughs> communities, not to say that we're automatically going to die younger, but maybe we're at increased risk for dying younger, but there's no <laughs> prescription for loneliness that I can give to my patients. Are there some policy prescriptions. I think you've been working on some that we can do in the U.S. around loneliness. Yes. So in part, not only have we made some recommendations, so as a member of the Global Global Initiative on Loneliness and Connection, our, our position statement includes several recommendations, as does the National Academy of Science report. And um, I'm currently working with other nations and including the U.S., on establishing additional kinds of, of recommendations that are, are based on the evidence and that can help not only individuals, but communities and more larger societal recommendations on how we might address this. Because one of the things we need to recognize is that while we see this as an individual issue, it's not entirely developing within an individual, meaning that some of the causes can be part of the societal institutions and our environment that make it harder to connect with other people. Um, So whether it's how our communities are designed and they are unwalkable, so it makes it harder for us to get out in our community or policies that, that make it more difficult to engage with others or even just practices that that might foster greater animosity and competition between people rather than more cooperation and and coming together on various issues. And so we have to recognize that 
that while it affects people profoundly at an individual level, that there are many factors that contribute to isolation and loneliness that go far beyond the individual's level of control. I'm reminded of, I, I gave a talk in, in Puerto Rico not too long ago, and one of the, the physicians was talking about a patient that was very isolated and lonely. And, you know, the, the initial recommendation was like, oh, you know, get out and talk to your neighbors, join a social group. Many of the things that we know scientifically can have a positive impact. But this patient lived in a very dangerous neighborhood mm. where um, it was hearing gunshots on a daily basis was not unheard of. Mm -hmm. And it ignored the kinds of factors that she didn't feel safe going out. Yeah. And that's why she was isolated. And so there are some of these issues that we need to tackle at a broader level than just what an individual alone can do. Now, there are some who have said that isolation is a public health crisis. What about the naysayers who go, is that a little bit overblown? I mean, <laughs> are, are friendships and relationships that important to health? How would you argue against those naysayers that it is a public health crisis? Well, in terms of how do we define that, the way I think of it is we have very robust evidence of the negative health effects and costs to society, so economic as well as other kinds of outcomes. And so things like workplace productivity, healthcare costs. And so it has a larger societal impact as well as the individual impact on health. In terms of a crisis, we also have evidence that it is increasing. Especially with our aging population. Yeah. So not only do we have evidence of a significant portion of the population that is isolated, lonely, or both, you know, some indicator of being socially disconnected, but there's some evidence to suggest that this is increasing. And this was particularly true during the pandemic. And we have longitudinal evidence from, you know, prior to the pandemic to during the pandemic that, that demonstrate those increases. And so I will give the caveat, though, that because there's variation in measurement, that it's hard to pin down the exact prevalence rates because people are measuring it differently, right? And so you might get or using different cutoffs to classify people as, as lonely or not lonely. But even within the longitudinal studies where they're showing, okay, regardless of how they measured it, if they showed an increase, we do see some increases. And so from that standpoint, it's an issue that's serious and it's an issue that has some urgency to it. Mm -hmm. The other kind of, I guess, how I would suggest that, you know, we should take it seriously to the naysayers is that it's very much interconnected with many of the other issues that are, are pressing issues. Because believe me, I, I recognize that there are limited resources available and lots of important issues that we need to solve, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so I think part of it comes down to, should we be putting our time and resources into this issue over other issues? Yeah. And where I think there may be some good investment in terms of this is that the extent to which we are socially connected or lack social connection 
can significantly impact many of the other pressing social issues Mm. that we face today. Mm. So for instance, if we think about addiction, not that it's the only, but maybe one of the underlying root causes. And so by addressing this, it helps us Mm. address this other issue. There's some preliminary evidence to suggest that isolation may be linked to violence as well. So when we think about issues related to violence, suicide, even national security, there's evidence to suggest that isolation leads to greater mistrust in institutions and um, leads to greater extremism and is ripe for extremist groups. And so by addressing this issue, it helps us address some of these other very pressing issues, it doesn't take away. And so I think from that standpoint, there's some justification for for also taking this seriously. Well, I got to start prioritizing relationships because my health actually depends upon it. And thank you for giving us the evidence behind that for your research, which is uh, fascinating. And So it's not only diet, exercise, sleep, stopping smoking, but prioritizing our relationships. Well, thank you for coming on the show and for giving us some insight into your work. Oh gosh, that was a great conversation. Thank you. You can follow Julian Holt-Lunstad on Twitter. Her handle is J-H-O-L-T-L-U-N-S-T-A-D. And you can also reach out to me on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab is produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.